So if you'll turn to Psalm 24 and then, so you're probably just going to keep your finger there. We're going to read it and then we're going to look at the background for this psalm. And this is a magnificent psalm. One that is a got several different contexts. So we've got the historical context of the psalm. We've also got, um, I'd say, three other prophetic contexts of this psalm. So let's go ahead and read it. It says, it's on, um, uh, it's on page 460, so hopefully, hopefully that helps. All right, the earth is the Lord and all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So um, let's try to keep that in mind as we go back. We're going to read the historical context, which starts in 1 Samuel chapter 4. So you've got... um, the, the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then I believe 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel starts in chapter 4. I'm just going to explain chapter 4, then we're going to read 5 and 6. So in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, the Israel is going to go out and fight the Philistines. And so what they want to do, they want to go and get the ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant. And remember what that is. That is the the Ark that is in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. That is basically God's throne in his temple. You have the mercy seat. You have two cherubim on top looking down upon the mercy seat. Underneath the mercy seat, you have the law of God. Okay, You have the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down, hewn out of stone. And also you have the jar of manna. You have Aaron's um, rod that had budded. And... Um, you have those angels on top, and the, the, or the um, presence of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of God, would appear between the cherubim above the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where they would go on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle blood of the Lamb on that mercy seat. Okay, And so they figure, we're going to take this ark out into battle with us. And when they take it out, Eli's left back, he's the, he's the priest and the judge of Israel at that time, the high priest. And he's worried to death. He's worried sick for it. He also has two sons out there who are rotten sons. Okay? Hophni and Phinehas. And they were taking sacrifices for themselves. The thought is that they were even taking advantage of women. They were being a horrible representative of priests of God to the people. And so his sons are out there too. The ark ends up getting captured by the Philistines. When when um, Eli hears about that, he also hears that his sons are dead. He's like, okay, no big deal there. But when he finds out that the Ark of God has been captured by the Philistines, he falls over in his chair 
and he's very old. He breaks his neck and dies. And so in chapter 5, we're going to pick up and, and we're going to find out what happens to the ark as the Philistines take it. Okay, so it says in chapter 5, verse 1, <coughs> Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. So Dagon is this, um, this vile fish god. So he was the, actually the god of the Assyrians. Why he's one of the chief gods among um, the Philistines, we're not sure. Perhaps they fought against Assyria and took their god and put it in their temple. Um, but that ends up being kind of one of the main gods that they worship. So they take the ark and they set it before Dagon. So verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon, set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both his palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso torso was left of it. So what they're basically doing is taking the ark, and it's like they're presenting it before Dagon, like you have conquered this god, and it belongs to you. This is our offering to you, Dagon. But what happens? They wake up in the morning. Dagon's fallen over on his face, prostrate before the ark of Yahweh. Okay? So he's fallen prostrate, and then the next day, they sit him back up. They're like, oh, darn it. You know, they set him back up, and they come back again in the morning. He's fallen over again. His hands and his head are broken off like Yahweh has just conquered Dagon in, their, in his own temple. So verse 5. Um, Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was after they had carried away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck them into the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Now these tumors are specific. Um, if, if you were to read the, the Old King James, it says tumors broke out in their secret places. So most likely these, are, these tumors are affecting their genitals, which makes total sense. He, God is basically saying, I am going to destroy you. You're going to have no children you are going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And at that time, it's very important that you procreate because you're a city. The smaller you are, you're going to get taken over. The bigger and larger and more powerful you are, the greater you're going to be. Your enemies are going to submit to you. Okay? And so God's basically saying, you're all dead. I'm going to wipe out your race completely. Verse 10. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, 
Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was heavy there and the men who did not die were stricken with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Um, We're going to find out later that they're going to make little statues of these rats. And the thought is that God also sent rats, so perhaps something like a bubonic plague struck them as well. So some people are getting tumors, some people are just falling down dead in the city. All right, verse 6, chapter 6. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, how should we send it to its place? So they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you, And on your lords, therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now therefore make a new cart, take two milk cows, before I go any farther... Notice, they are remembering what God did to Egypt, you know, a thousand years prior. These priests, these diviners, they remember and they say, this is the God of Israel who came and he struck the Egyptians with the plagues. And then he led Israel out with a mighty hand and then destroyed Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea. They remember that. You know, and I, I, like, I think it's in First Peter, it says, this they willfully forget. That God destroyed the earth with a flood, right? And destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for their depravity. You know, we willfully forget those things, but everybody knows it. People willfully forget that God is a God of justice and judgment. And why do they willfully forget? So that we can just do what we want. We can be our own lords, our own gods, and we can rule ourselves. But here's the prescription, what they're going to do. Okay, so um, look at, again at verse 7 in First uh, Samuel chapter 6. It says, <clears throat> Now therefore make a new cart, take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to their cart, and take their calves home, away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord, and set it on the cart, and put the circle, the articles of gold, which you are returning to him as a trespass offering, in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, we shall know that it is not by his hand that that struck us. It happened to us by chance. So what they're going to do, they're going to take the ark of God, they're going to put it on a cart, and they're going to have two milk cows, which have calves, and they're going to send those milk cows out. And now, just by instinct, those cows are going to go want to go back to their calves. Okay, So this is kind of their test. They know that they're going to want to go back to their calves. So if they go down the road, which is way easier than pulling a cart up road, 
we know this just happened by chance. But if it goes up to Beth Shemesh, which is, a, which is um, in contradiction to those animals' instincts to go back to their calves and also to go downhill, then we'll know that this was from Yahweh, that he struck us with, this, with these terrible plagues. Okay, verse 10. Then the men did so. They took two milk cows, hitched them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart, and the chest with the gold rats and the images of, the, of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh, and went along the highway, lowing as they went. And they did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now Beth Shemesh, Shemesh is uh, actually a, a territory that was allotted to the Levites. Okay, so who are they going to, who's going to receive the ark? The Levites, those who are supposed to be priests in the temple of God. All right, verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, and one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both the fortified cities and the country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Okay, now listen to this. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented, because the Lord had struck the people with a great, great slaughter. In other manuscripts, just so you know, um, it's actually just 70 men. So it says here 50,070 men. It's thought that the 50,000 might have been a scribal error or something like that. Um, so the 70 men who probably opened that up, they died. So anybody seen Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom? Or no, no, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You guys seen that? Okay, so remember they open it up and Dan Jones says, don't look, don't look. And all these little things are flying around and they kill everybody. So I don't know if that happened, but something like it happened. Okay, these people died. But what did they do? They removed the mercy seat and they are face to face with the law of God. Okay, when we are face to face with the law of God, we realize we deserve death. And they got death. They removed God's mercy, the blood that was covering the law of God, the atoning blood, was removed. If you don't have the blood of Jesus Christ to atone, to propitiate for your sins, you are dead. You are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, it says in Ephesians 2. Right? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But the propitiating work of Jesus Christ, him removing God's wrath by his, the gift of himself, of his blood, takes away God's wrath from us. Right? And so when we go to God, we don't go to him based on our own merits. 
or because we think we've kept the law or anything else, we go to him based on the fact that his son died for our sins. And that's the only reason we can approach him. The only reason. And so they, they remove the, the lid of the ark, the mercy seat. Verse 20. And, and think of that too. These men are supposed to be Levites. They're supposed to guard the holiness of God. Right? And what's it say in the psalm we're reading? Psalm 24. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity, and who has not sworn deceitfully. You know, these men do not have clean hands or pure hearts. They're, they're not reverencing the God the way they're supposed to. Okay, verse 20. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Then the men of Kiriath-Jerim came, took the ark of the Lord, and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. All right, and it does end up getting moved around a little bit after that. And uh, it's probably more closer to 80 years that it's not in the temple. All right, and it's not in Jerusalem. Okay, now we're going to go to 2 Samuel. Chapter 6. And we're going to see David bring the ark back into Jerusalem. And it's thought that this is when David wrote Psalm 24. Okay. So again, David gathered, so verse 1, chapter 6, again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts. So anytime you see the Lord of hosts, hosts means armies. So Lord of the angel armies or of the armies of Israel or, or heavenly armies who dwells between the cherubim. So the cherubim again are those two angels sitting on top of the ark. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. So first off, the ark was not supposed to be carried this way. The ark was supposed to be carried by Levitical priests, um, by the, the, the rods or the poles that were projecting out from the ark. So they're supposed to lift it up, hoist it up, and carry it. It's not supposed to be put on a cart, but how did the Philistines bring it in? By a cart. So David's thinking, well, they brought it in by a cart. They were okay. Let's you know, move it, keep going the same way. We're not supposed to do things the way the world does them. All right? We're not supposed to be the way the world is. We're not supposed to conform to the pattern of this world, but we're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Right? We're supposed to do things God's way, not the way this culture says, not the way all our friends are doing it, but the way God says. Okay? Because look what happens. Verse 4 They brought it out of the house of Benadab which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his name, 
went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand um, to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, or his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. Perez means outbreak, outbreak against Uzzah. So the oxen stumble, Uzzah puts his hand to steady the ark. The moment he touches it, he is not a Levitical priest. He is not the man who is supposed to touch that ark. He dies. The Lord strikes him dead. Now whose fault was this? David gets angry, but really it's his fault. He should have said, no, we need to call the Levites. They need to carry this the way that is prescribed in the law of the Lord. And he put his friend in danger. And what was Jesus mistake? Jesus thinking, I don't want to touch the ground. He's, his mistake is thinking his hand is more holy than the ground it's going to fall on. Right? The, the ground does exactly what God bids it to do. Right? It raises up grass and trees at the, at the command of God. It dries up at the command of God. We are not so. And Jesus' hand is not holy enough to touch the ark. Look at verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would, would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but, took, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. So I thought is, is that perhaps David wrote Psalm 24 at this time. I mean, just imagine they're bringing the ark into Jerusalem saying, open wide ye heavenly gates, gates, right? And um, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. This is the king of glory. The one who just destroyed Philistines. The one who is holy. He's the Lord of glory. Right? And so they're bringing it in to the city of David. Into And at David's time, there was no temple, right? You had the tabernacle. And so they're bringing it into the gates of the tabernacle. And um, we have a... So that's the first. That's the historical background to the psalm. All right? Um, there's also a prophetic background. The psalm was designated for Sunday worship. If you were to read the Septuagint, which I just kind of stumbled across in my studies, which was super cool, but the heading for the Septuagint in Psalm 24 says to be read on the first day of the week. Psalm 24, on Sunday. Now, 2,000 years ago, what do we celebrate? You know, 
Jesus coming into the temple, riding on a donkey, right? On a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And so I want you guys to go to Luke chapter 19, verse 28. So Matthew, Mark, Luke. Chapter 19, verse 28 is where we're going to start. All right, Luke 19, 28. When he had said this, he went ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were, as they were loosing the coat, colt, the owner of it said to them, why are you loosening the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it, need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their clothes on the colt and they sat, set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he went, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you, that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So I want you to think of this. On this day, that Psalm 24 is supposed to be read. Right? Psalm 24 is supposed to be read. And can you imagine, as Jesus is descending the Mount of Olives towards the Eastern Gate, that they should have been singing this psalm. And perhaps some of the priests were. Maybe they did it beforehand. Maybe they did it afterwards as part of their worship. But it says, Lift up, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I mean, just think of that as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem and they're saying something somewhat similar. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The king of glory is entering in through those gates. And so there's another prophetic context to this psalm. Okay, But what happens is Jesus is going down. What does he do? Look at verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. They didn't know that this was the king of glory. They should have been shouting, who is this king of glory? Right? The shout, the cry, the proclamation would have come back. The Lord, strong and mighty, he is the king of glory. But Jesus did have to die for the sins of the world. Right? So, 
The next um, prophetic context we see, I believe, would be Jesus entering into heaven itself after the resurrection, right? He ascends. He's received by God. It says in Mark 19, or 16, 19, So then after the Lord had spoken them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And notice it says, you everlasting doors. You everlasting doors that the king of glory may come in. So this could also be a direct prophecy of Jesus ascending to the right hand of God. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are the copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. For us. And then 1 Peter 3.22. Jesus, who had gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers, having been made subject to him. He is the Lord of glory. And there's yet a future context at the second coming of Christ, when he comes to dwell on the earth, to reign for a thousand years, right? So I want you guys to go to Isaiah chapter 63. So you have um, Psalms, and then uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63. And this is at the second coming of Christ. Most people think he's going to come, he's just going to sit on the Mount of Olives, right? And then he's going to rule from there. But he's going to go somewhere first. And it's, we, we find this out from verse 1, Isaiah 63. It says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Okay, Edom, all right, modern day Jordan. You have Petra. I want you guys to all later look up on your phones or computers, look up Petra, okay? And uh, you're going to see, or if you saw Indiana Jones in the, um, the Last Crusade, okay, Indiana Jones again, they actually go to Petra to, to find the, um, the chalice, the, what do they call it, that Christ drunk from? The Holy Grail, that's what they called it back then. They go to look for it, and it's in Petra. But if you look at the pictures, you go through this very narrow um, splitting the rocks, which is super defensible, defensible, right? No armies are going to get through there. If they do come through, only a few are going to be able to come through at a time. And then you have a whole army just waiting there to slaughter whoever comes through there. And then you have this huge rock fortress, this rock city. And thousands of people can fit inside of this thing. It's, it's amazing. So look at the pictures of it when you go home. I don't think the projector's working, so I didn't, I didn't bother to, to put um, a slideshow together of some of these pictures. But um, this is where Jesus is going to come first. And the thought is that during the tribulation period, the Jews are going to flee there, and that's going to be a place of refuge for them. And they're going to wait for the coming of their Messiah to rescue them from the armies of Antichrist. Okay? So again, verse 1, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? I, who speak in righteousness, mighty to save, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? I have treaded the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. 
For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, my, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my fury and brought down their strength to the earth. So I believe this is a picture of Jesus saving his Jewish remnant out of Basra, right, and leading them. In um, Micah 2, don't have to go there, verses 12 through 13, um, it says, and I'm going to read from the King James because it, it does gives the right translation here. It says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee, and I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra. Now in the New King James it says sheep of the fold, but literally in Hebrew it's Basra. Okay? They tried to um, interpret it rather than just give the direct translation. So I will... Um, I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The one who breaks open will come before him. The one who breaks open is the Lord. Okay. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. How awesome is that? Showing God's going to lead his people out of Basra, out of that city. And um, now, Revelation 19, I think this kind of ties it all together for that future coming of Jesus. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, it says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, just like in Isaiah chapter 63. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Who are those armies? I believe it's us. It's his church. It's his bride coming with him. And he's going to look at fancy. Nobody's going to help me do this. The Lord does it all himself. What are we doing? We're just like, yeah, Lord, get him. <laughs> Stand up behind him. But it's going to be awesome, and it's for his glory that that's going to happen. Um, Verse 15, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All right, so get this picture. He's going to go to Basra. He's going to travel. He's going to destroy his enemies on the way. He's going to come to the Mount of Olives. So that's going to lead us to Zechariah chapter 14. So if you go to Matthew, hang a left. You'll see Malachi. Then you'll see Zechariah chapter 14. It's the last chapter of Zechariah. So starting in verse 1, Zechariah chapter 14, it says, The day of the Lord is coming. And always remember when you see Lord in all caps, or even God in all caps, it's the covenant name of God. It's Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. Okay, So the day of Yahweh is coming. 
And so you guys know, Jesus is Yahweh. He proclaimed that. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Yahweh means I am, that who I am. Jesus is Yahweh. The Father is Yahweh, right? So behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from among the city. Okay, so that's going to happen during the tribulation period, probably in those last three and a half years of the tribulation period, okay? And this, this is what's going to happen afterwards. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move towards the north, and half of it towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Azal just means reserved. So a place reserved for his remnant people, okay? Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord God, the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. So there we have it again, all the saints with him. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that there will be light. So Jesus is going to cause this earthquake to happen. His remnant's going to flee out of the city, and they're going to go to the place that he has reserved for them. While he judges all the nations, but where is he at this point? He's standing on the Mount of Olives. And what happens when he is standing at the Mount of Olives? I, um, Psalm 24. Who is this? Or lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is this king of glory. And so just imagine, imagine that proclamation. Imagine the cry from the wall, who is this king of glory? And they find out it's the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. As the cry comes back to them, right? Just an amazing picture of what Jesus is going to do, right? After he brings judgment and justice. I mean, all the stuff that's going on right now is going to be done with. It's going to be done with. He is going to destroy the wicked. The righteous are going to flourish. Right? And it's going to be a great day. It is going to be a sad day. A day of gnashing and weeping and mourning. But at the same time, it's going to be a day of glory because justice has been done. Right? We all desire justice to be done. Every single one of us. Just not to ourselves. Right? That's why we call on Jesus because he took our just punishment for us. Right? All right. So let's look at the psalm now from beginning to end. And it is a short psalm, so that was, that was just the introduction. But it is a short psalm, so we're going to be okay. All right. So Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord and Lord's in all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the waters, and Paul quotes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 26, when it talks about 
receiving food that have been sacrificed to idols and stuff like that. He says, if, if, if an idol is nothing. He says, eat what's put before you. But if you find out that person is worshiping, you know, and eating that, don't eat it. You don't want to defile that person's conscience. But, you know, if nobody tells you, all the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness thereof. It's all his. Right? You're not taking something from another God. You're taking from the Lord, even though it's been sacrificed to another God. And so that's what Paul uses this very passage in that context. But think about that. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell in therein. It's his. It is his. When he comes back, what is he doing? He's not infiltrating something that's not his. He's saying, this is mine, and this is mine, and this is mine. It's all mine. Every single bit of the earth is mine. All the people who dwell on it are mine. All the kings are mine. And I can do with them as I please, because they are mine. Right? He is the Lord of glory. He is the king of the universe. And he's righteous and good and just. And so, he can destroy it if he desires. He can send a flood, as he did. Or he can destroy the earth with fire, as he will. Then look at verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, literally vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. So think, who, who can come before the presence of God? When we come here, right, we are coming before his word, before what he has given us. As his word is being read and preached correctly, we are in the presence of God. Because our hearts are being judged, right? Our hearts, and nobody leaves here the same. We pray that sometimes. Lord, don't let us leave here the way we came in. That is an actual, absolute impossibility. We will either leave harder against the word of God, or we will leave softer, right? And that's our goal, to come before him and to have soft hearts, broken hearts, to say, Lord, I need you desperately. I need you. I can do nothing on my own. I have nothing. Who have I in heaven but you, and who... Do I desire on earth besides you? As David will say later in another psalm. Why, why do we come here? Is it to come before God, to bring your hearts before him, before his word? Right? Or are we, and this is very easy, just to get stuck in a rut. To come here just, okay, I go to church on Sundays, that's just what I do. You know, I listen to the pastor preach, my mind wanders, and I fall asleep, which you guys are doing awesome. I haven't seen anybody fall asleep yet. You know, <laughs> arch closed. <laughs> but why, why do we come here? And how do we think we can come and stand before God? Right? We are in his presence right now. We may not um, understand that to its fullness. I know we don't. We may not perceive him. We're like Jacob. Remember, Jacob goes, he lays his head on a rock, he's fleeing from his brother Esau, and um, he sees this ladder, the staircase, let down from heaven, and the angels of God are descending and ascending and descending. And um, he wakes up and he says, Behold, this is the house of the Lord, and I did not know it. Right? He was in God's presence, but he didn't know it, and that showed it to him. That was his manifest presence. But his presence is with us wherever we go. 
What does he proclaim to us? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Right? And in the, um, the, the Great Commission, what does he say? Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. And literally, it's every day till the end of the age. I'm with you every day. You are in his presence right now. You are in his presence when you leave here. Right? Do we forsake that, though? And who can stand in his presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, washed in the blood of Christ. Right? These hands have done violence. They've, done, they've stolen. They've done all kinds of things. But I have been washed. I've been made clean by his sacrifice for me. Our hands can be gross and wicked, but so we must be forgiven. But then when we are forgiven, what do we do? Do we go out and live like we used to and then come to church? Or go read our Bibles and pray to him and stuff like that? With these defiled hands, without asking for forgiveness and without repentance? Can we really have his presence in that way where we say, we're just going through the motions or, or we think he's, we're going to be accepted for some reason or we just say, it's all grace, Lord, and we can just do whatever we want now. That is not a redeemed heart. Okay, That's not a regenerate heart. A regenerate heart says, yeah, I'm going to mess up and I need your forgiveness and I need your power to help me, to keep me from sin. Right? And that's why I'm hiding your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. That's why I'm coming before you. I'm letting the word of God be poured into me because I don't want to sin against you. I want to be yours. I want to be wholly yours. Do you think Jesus just died for part of you? Just to redeem you to heaven? No, he died for your entire life. To buy you for himself. So who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He has clean hands. And in um, 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul says this, to Timothy. He says, I desire that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Lifting up holy hands in worship. And also not in competition with each other. Right? Holy hands. Not saying I can raise my hands higher than you, Joe. You know, in worship. But just loving God together, worshiping him together. Praying and interceding together. Right? And our hands are supposed to be holy. They're supposed to be for the Lord now. For the Lord. Not for this world. And holiness is a commandment. It says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Right? Jesus is our holiness. His righteousness is our righteousness. Because it's been imputed to us. But there is also sanctification. Okay, we are set apart. The moment we believe in Jesus Christ, we are set apart for God. We belong to him. But then we spend the rest of our lives setting ourselves apart for him as well. Okay, makes sense? So we don't go back to just living how we used to. We say, Lord, I want to cling to you and strive towards you. I want to do your will. I want to be about your kingdom, your business, every day of my life, from the moment I'm saved to my death. I want my life to be redeemed in this world. Right? So he who has a clean, so who may ascend the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. So a pure heart, so you have innocent hands and also an innocent heart. 
Your motives are not just to get yours or to sin against the Lord. You have purity now. He's given you a new heart. He's removed your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. So clean hands, a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity. Okay, it says idle. And the, the literal word is vanity. Okay, nothingness. And one of those ways is idolatry, idol worship. That's one way we can lift our soul up to vanity is idol worship. So the New King James is not wrong here, but it's only one aspect of it. Most other translations say to falsehood, to falsehood, which I believe would also be kind of in the sense of idolatry. And that vanity would mean idolatry. But also, what is carrying you away from the Lord? What is vain? Striving after the things of this world all the time. Right? That's vanity. It's all going to perish. It's all going to burn. Every single bit of it. What's carrying you away? What's carrying your heart away from worship? From striving towards God? From working for him? What is it? Going to the gym? Okay, I'm just going to talk about myself. Going to the gym? <laughs> You know, it's like midlife crisis or something. I used to be, you know, buff stuff in the gym, and now I'm trying to get it back. Stupid vanity, right? I've been rebuked. My back hurts now, and and uh, <laughs> so my perspective is changing again. You know, that's what he did before. He let me get hurt so that I could seek him and get my mind off vain things, my hobbies, you know, even religious things. You know there's a whole group today that is like King James only and if you know and I guarantee once they love the Lord but now they just love the King James Bible because it's the King James Bible not loving the Lord of the Bible. It's vain. They're lifting up their soul to vanity. Okay? And they say if anybody's that the new King James is just the work of the devil. You know, stuff like that. I mean extreme. Lifting up our souls to vanity. What is it? There's something in every single one of our lives that we're lifting up our souls to. And I've been praying since I read this, Lord, help us to repent of that. Help me to repent of that. It's okay to have hobbies. It's okay to do things. But is it carrying you away? Right? Is it carrying you away from your God? Where is your devotion? And really what this is, it's unhypocritical worship. Because what would they do back in David's day? They'd bring a lamb or a goat or an ox or, or sheep or something. Perfect, unblemished. They'd bring it to the temple and offer it as a sacrifice for themselves. And then what would they think? Okay, I'm good now. I can spend time with God. And David's saying, through the Holy Spirit, is saying, no! No, you cannot come before God. You may have offered your sacrifices, but your hands are dirty. Your heart is impure. Your heart is lifted up to vanity, and you have sworn deceitfully. Right? You're a liar. And you think you can come before God through religious prescription? God looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. Let's move on. And what's going to happen to this person? He shall receive blessing from the Lord, right? The blessing of his presence. And, okay, maybe I won't go on. 
This passage was used in 1949 to start a revival in Scotland. An amazing revival. It was um, the Isle of Lewis revival in 1949. The minister came to this passage, and they had been waiting for a revival. They had these two old ladies, and it seems like it's fiction, but this is very well documented. It's only in 1949. The minister who went there was a guy named Duncan Campbell, and other people have come back to give a test, the same testimony to what happened there. Okay? These two old ladies are like 80, 90 years old, something like that. One of them is blind, has a vision. And he's, she sees all these young people crowding into the church, tons of them. And then he sees a strange minister, a different minister that's usually there, and it's Duncan Campbell. And so they call him three times, and he rejects their offer to come and preach for them. Finally, he's just... He's going to go preach somewhere. He leaves preaching there. He doesn't even go. And he gets on a boat and goes to this place. He gets there. And they said, oh, it's about time you listen to the Lord. <laughs> and, um, but this, this minister, one night he, he reads this, this passage. He says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, and he said, what's the point of all this praying and waiting on the Lord if we are not rightly related to God? If we're not rightly related to him. They were praying for a revival, but were they rightly related to the Lord? He falls to his knees and begins to weep. I think it was um, the next day this revival breaks out. Duncan Campbell goes in there and he says, I'm not the person. He just goes, preaches to the normal people who are there, God does such a work outside the church that everybody's God conscious. Okay? Everybody like gets the sense that God is there. People are dropping in the streets for fear. This one guy's laying on the ground saying, hell's too good for me. Hell's too good for me. Another man, he's, he's, um, comes to the altar and he starts praying, Lord, is there mercy for me too? And he's weeping and he's crying and he's terrified. Lord, is there mercy for me? And these two young teenage girls come up to him and all these kids had come into the church, all these teenagers. That's what the revival was, was of these teenagers. And they come, these two teenage girls come before this man and they say, the same Jesus who saved us last night can save you. Right? And this revival spreads all over the place. So again, do we have clean hands and a pure heart? Just imagine what America is going to be like if there, in five years if there's no revival. Just imagine. We should be trembling at that. Just imagine it. Imagine our kids if there's no revival. Are they going to follow the Lord? I am terrified for Clarence Page and Abby and Victoria and Dylan and Daisha, my children and my nieces and other children, if there is no revival, if they are not conscious of God, of who he is, of what he's done for them, of what is right and wrong, what is going to happen to them? What is going to happen? And we have the tremendous privilege of giving them the, his word, his gracious word. But this world is going to seduce them. Right? This world is trying to seduce our children and us to follow after it. To say what it says is right when it's actually wrong and when it's actually evil. Right? We have to combat that through the word of God, through prayer. 
Okay? We must. We must be praying for our kids. I need you guys praying for my kids, for my brother's kids, for kids you see, for, for um, Cody and Ryan who come in here, the Fletcher's boys. Right? For Daisha and Dylan. I need you guys' prayers for them. And for any other kids you know. For any other people you know. Revival must come. We're done. Right? And revival could still come, and we might still be done, but at least there's going to be a whole lot of people going to heaven. Right? We're going to see God work magnificently. But look at verse 5 again. He shall receive blessing from the Lord. Blessing from the Lord. His presence is the greatest blessing we can have. And righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Jacob is, you know, another name for Israel. The sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes. Look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So, just the questions I would ask myself, and I am asking myself, do I have clean hands? Or am I making excuses for what I do? Do I have a pure heart, or are my motives right before the Lord? Right? Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, it says in Corinthians. Take every thought captive. Your, your mind's straying over here towards something that you know is not right, whether it's anger or immorality or whatever it is. You drag it back. You cage it up for Christ. Right? You take it captive for him. Take your thoughts captive. Read your word. Read your Bible. Constantly, every day. Don't let a day go by where you're not communing with God through His Word. Right? We have to have our minds renewed. Right? And that process doesn't just stop at some point, it's continuous. They must be renewed. And look forward. Look forward to the coming of our Messiah. You know, I believe He's going to rapture us. Right? I believe the Bible teaches of the pre tribulation rapture where he comes and he gathers his people to, for himself while, the, while he's pouring out his wrath on the earth. Because right? we're not children of wrath. Right? We're children of grace. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to do... I should have printed it on the thing the way I kind of have it here. But kind of a responsive reading just because I want you guys to see what they would do at the temple. Okay? So just kind of follow me. Don't start yet, but... I'll say, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell in. Then you guys will read verse 2 and 3. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And then, who may ascend the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? And then I'll answer as, you know, I'll pretend to be the priest, okay? Because I'm up here and you're not, that's why. He who has a clean heart, and, or clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up a soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And then you guys will reply in verse 6. So as we're doing this, I'll point to you guys, okay? All right? And then I'll point to myself. You guys will reply with verse 6. I'll go to verse 7. 
You guys say, who is this king of glory? And then I'll answer, the Lord mighty, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And then um, lift up uh, your heads, O gates, that verse 9. And then you guys will say the first part of verse 10, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is this king of glory. Okay, so let's just do the best we can. All right? <laughs> Doesn't have to be too pretty. We'll go slow, though, too. Okay? So just take your time. All right. So I'll point at me, then I'll point at you guys. All right? So the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. Keep going. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Oh, sorry, that's mine. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the, King of glory? the Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Selah. All right, you guys did fantastic.